You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, if you've not been with us over the last several weeks, as I mentioned, we are a few weeks into a sermon series in the book of Leviticus. And so a couple things just for you to know about us as a church. One, this is a regular rhythm for us, not being in the book of Leviticus, lest some of you think, man, I chose the wrong church. Uh, No, but walking left to right through entire books of the Bible is a regular rhythm for us. Why? Because all Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is profitable. It's good. It's necessary. And all Scripture including the book of Leviticus, tells of the grace and mercy, the kindness, love, the story of redemption authored by God our Creator and carried out by Christ Jesus our Savior. And so we have been walking through the book of Leviticus and asking the question of how does this book continue on the story of redemption? It falls right after Exodus, the the, the freedom of God's people out of slavery and bondage. But it also, more importantly, at the end of Exodus, God covenants. He enters into a relationship with the nation of Israel to be their God and for them to be His people. Now that sounds great, except for one thing has to happen for God to truly be their God and for them to be His people, and that's that He has to dwell amongst them. And again, that's really great, except for the fact that God, you know, shows up in things like a tornado of fire in the book of Exodus. A daunting task for a holy and powerful God to dwell amongst His people. As a matter of fact, that kind of thought comes to culmination at the end of Exodus where the tabernacle, the place where the glory of God will dwell, is finally built, finally commissioned, and then Moses, the man that was called a friend of God, the holiest of all the people of Israel, we are told, cannot enter into the tabernacle because he, even, was incompatible with the glory of God. And so the book of Leviticus asks and answers the question, how can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people and that's what we've been answering leviticus 1 into leviticus 7 answers that question in part by the lord giving to israel offering sacrifices he sets up a system by which another another animal can be substituted for israel and as that animal is slayed Its blood makes atonement for the sins, the brokenness of the people of God. But those sacrifices required priests, mediators. And so God, last week we saw in Leviticus chapter 8, commissions Aaron and his four sons as priests of God. Now, we spoke again about the fact that even though that was a great gift to Israel, that was once again a heartbreaking gift because God had promised that His people would one day be a kingdom of priests. All of His people would be holy. They would be able to enter into His presence. They would bring His glory to the world. They would be commissioned as priests, and yet it was only five out of all of Israel. 
And then, if you've been following along in our weekly devotions, this week we looked at Leviticus 9. Leviticus 9, after Aaron and his sons are commissioned as priests, after the seven days of anointing takes place, at the end of that, Aaron and his sons finally offer all of the sacrifices commanded and given in Leviticus 1-7. to The burnt offering, the peace offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, all of them He offers. And the Lord gloriously burns up, accepts the offering, and all of Israel celebrates. So Leviticus 1-9, to all of a sudden we start to get this glimmer of hope. Maybe a sinful people really can dwell with a holy God. Maybe this holy God really is graciously, kindly offering us a way to be with Him. And then comes Leviticus 10. In in many ways, Leviticus 10 comes, and for most of us we might think, oh, there's the God of Leviticus I remember. There's the holy God of the Old Testament that I think of, the God who is incredibly difficult to please and incredibly easy to displease. Here is the God who is always only moments away from issuing judgment upon His sinful creation. Unless you think I'm going to undercut your tension already at this point in the sermon, I won't. Because that is this God. In our state, He is incredibly difficult to please. And in His holy perfection, He is incredibly easy to displease. And in His faithfulness and truth and judgment and justice, He is always only a moment away from issuing judgment and wrath on those and that which deserves His judgment and wrath. Now, lest you think again you walked into a tough church on Sunday morning, If you are new here and you look to your left and your right, I invite you just to ask someone that's been here, is he always like this? And I hope they'll say no. As a matter of a fact, it's been almost five years that we have been a church, and every single Sunday I have ended with one phrase, you are loved beyond belief. It's true. And so is Leviticus 10. And so it leaves us in a bit of a conundrum, doesn't it? It leaves us in a tense place. How do we reconcile this God, this holy God, this God who is so perfect, who consumes with judgment the sinful, with the grace and mercy and kindness that we so freely extol. Let me tell you one way you don't resolve that tension. You don't resolve the tension by not looking at it. Right? I I have a couple of kiddos that um, are great kiddos, and they're great big brothers and big sisters, but they hate the sight of blood. And so if one of their siblings, younger siblings, gets hurt, 
Like, they care, but they just can't look at it. Right? They're like, I'm really sorry, but you're going to need to bleed over there because I have to go over here. Right? I get it. You can't help if you don't look at it. If you don't know what's going on. If I ever went into a doctor's office, Sekou Kelsey, okay? Adam Rents, if I ever come to you for help, and I'm bleeding, and you go, I can't look at that. Not helpful. Right? You don't resolve attention by pretending it doesn't exist. Instead, you look at it, and especially when it comes to God, and ask Him, how do you resolve this for me? Because we've already seen who moves the story of redemption forward when it seems that there's nowhere to go. Our God does. He moves it forward when it seems that there is nowhere to go. And my prayer today is that He will do just that. And so here's my plan for today's sermon. There's not three points. Well, that's not true. There are three points in my first of two points. So there's five points. I'm not sure. There's a lot of points. Two points, one of which is subdivided by three. The first rhythm, the first place I want us to go is just to do this. To marvel. To stand in awe and even to fear the Lord's holiness. To marvel. To stand in awe and even fear the Lord's holiness on display. And then second... To look at how the Lord's holiness may actually lead us to celebrate, cherish, and rest in His grace and mercy all the more. You ready? Alright, buckle up. Let's get into Leviticus 10. Verses 1-3, to it says this, Now Nadab and Abihu, the two oldest sons of Aaron, they each took a censer, They put fire in it, and they laid incense on it, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them. Fire came out, and it did not consume their offering, it consumed them. And they died before the Lord, and Moses went to said and said to Aaron, now this grieving father, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. The first nine chapters of Leviticus stand in stark contrast to the first two verses of Leviticus chapter 10. One of the things that you'll notice about Leviticus is that it is incredibly detailed. Right, the first seven chapters, oftentimes, if you just take the name of the sacrifice or offering out, just feels like a repetition of an immense amount of detail. It's why Leviticus, beyond its cultural strangeness, tends to be the graveyard of New Year's resolution reading plans. Right, you're like, okay, I get it. The, 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 the goat, and then it's, it's butchered, and then 
the, 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 the organs are taken out and they're washed and then they're put on the altar and the altar it's dabbed on the horns and then the blood is sprinkled on it and then it's lit and the fire comes up and it consumes it. And then, oh, if it's not a goat and it's an oxen, you do the exact same thing. It's detail after detail after detail. But so far, Aaron and his sons, the priests, have obeyed those details. Every time, thus saith the Lord so far in Leviticus, thus doeth His people. I feel like such an old school Baptist uh, pastor when I use old English. Until Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. And all of a sudden, Nadab and Abihu, two priests, the oldest two sons of Aaron, do not do what the Lord has commanded them to do. It says right there, which he had not commanded them. So what is it that they did? The author of Leviticus, Moses, tells us they offered unauthorized fire, or in some translations, strange fire before the Lord. Now I have seen a scad of commentaries on Leviticus chapter 10. And some people get into it, man. Like, they're like, they were offering mystical, magical fire before the Lord. And I I don't think they were. And the reason I don't think they were is we're actually told in Leviticus 16 what their sin was. And it wasn't that the, the, the fire glowed green or it was some sort of mystical fire. It was that they were offering... An incense offering, which was a legitimate offering, but they were offering it in a place and at a time that the Lord hadn't commanded. And they were consumed. The very presence of the Lord consumed them. Likely, it's inferred in Leviticus 16, that Nadab and Abihu tried to enter into the Holy of Holies the very center of the tabernacle complex, the place where the glory of the Lord dwelled most powerfully, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the lampstand was, where the mercy seat was. They tried to enter into that place to offer an incense offering to the Lord, and they were consumed. What was Nadab and Abihu's great sin? Probably presumption. Presumption. They presumed that they could come before the holy God of the universe on their terms as they pleased. At the end of Leviticus chapter 9, after Aaron and his sons offer correctly the sacrifices as the Lord commanded when He commands, The fire of the Lord, His presence and glory comes down and consumes the sacrifice. But here in chapter 10, when a sacrifice is offered unauthorized, when they come before the Lord without His command, His glory does not consume the sacrifice. It consumes them. Two image bearers created in the image of God as the pinnacle of creation. Humanity are consumed. 
And what happens? Moses goes to Aaron and he gives him but one sentence. Among those who are near me, the Lord says, I will be sanctified and among all the people I will be glorified. The first piece of knowing, standing in awe of the holiness of God is knowing, seeing, understanding the holiness of God in regards to His presence. The presence of God is holy and Nadab and Abihu came into His presence uninvited and uncovered. We already spoke in Leviticus 1 about how the Lord is holy and humanity is not. Holy literally means other, set apart. It's, it's a similar word that we see here when it says the Lord will be sanctified. He will be set apart. He will be recognized as holy. But if you didn't get your arms around the truth that God is truly holy and we are not in Leviticus 1, it's no longer theoretical in Leviticus 10. Here it is on display. Unholy humanity in the presence of holy God. Unholy humanity is consumed. When I was a senior in high school, actually here at Mascuta, we, we did a, a, a little gathering with students uh, a couple days before graduation. And at that gathering, they announced all the superlatives that were voted on by the class. So I'm sure we have a whole bunch of different superlatives from your yearbooks, you know, most likely to succeed. Some of you were that. Um, I don't think there's a most likely not to succeed, so hopefully none of you guys got voted that. Like, most likely to get married was one in ours. I think I received most likely not to be a pastor um, for our superlatives, right? But superlatives are meant to be, when people look at you, it's the one kind of big defining characteristic. The Lord has a superlative. And it's not grace. It's not mercy. It's not love. It's not power. It's not eternality. It's holy. You know, in our language, in order to define something as a superlative, we use an exclamation point. I know this because my wife for years now has been trying to teach me when and how many exclamation points I should use in text messages. It's apparently a very complex set of rules. It belongs in Leviticus. Okay? But that's what we use. We use exclamation points to, to tell something. This is really, really important. Use three exclamation points, maybe. Right? But in, in ancient Hebrew language, you know what they did to define something as a superlative? They repeated it three times. As if to say, it can be no more than this. One characteristic of God is repeated three times, and it is His holiness. Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah has the vision of the very presence of God, there are angelic creatures in His presence. And as they fly before Him, they repeat, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is most defined by His holiness. 
No other characteristic is treated that way. And I'm not lowering another characteristic. I'm just saying to you, there is no God, our God, Creator, universe, the only true God. There's no version of Him that is not holy, holy, holy. And to be in His holy presence is to come before that superlative. Two, two uh, winters ago, Rachel and I moved into a new house here in town and uh, super excited for the house. Uh, had lots of plans for renovation and COVID gave us that opportunity. So thank you for the pandemic, uh, silver lining. Um, but uh, last winter, we were doing some renovations and I was out back on our porch. Uh, uh, I had my saw out there and we were, we were cutting up some wood, and getting ready to do some framing. And it was really cold, or at least as cold as Southern Illinois gets. Now, the good thing about our new house is we have an outdoor fireplace. And so, sitting out here, I don't really use the outdoor fireplace much at all. And I'm like, you know what? I got my saw set up outside. It's freezing cold. I'm going to make myself a nice little fire in the, in the outdoor fireplace. And I'm going to, like, you know, enjoy a roasting fire, a cup of coffee, and a bunch of sawdust. And so I, I get the fire started, and I start to, to work on uh, measurements and, and, and cutting up uh, some wood. And all of a sudden, I hear this really loud noise. I'm like, what is it? And I turn around, and I look at the fireplace, and it's just a little, the fire's barely, barely still going. And I'm like, well, it's not that. But it, it just increases and increases and increases. And I'm like, what is happening? I hear this roaring noise. All of a sudden, I look up into the chimney. And I don't know if there was an animal still in there or if it was just the nest of an animal that had long since been forgotten. But the fire was not on fire here. It was fire in the chimney. And so immediately I, I go towards it because I'm like, i got to get this out. I don't, I don't want to burn down my house. That chimney's connected to the other chimney that goes into my house. And as I get close to it, I, I, I couldn't get within a couple feet. It was so hot that even just getting close enough to where I could see what was going on felt like it was going to burn my face. So I had to get this eight-foot, two-by-four and angle it correctly to get it up there without burning myself to, to get everything down. And here's, here's why I tell you that story. The presence of the Lord is incompatible. His holiness is incompatible with you and I, much like a roaring fire is incompatible with you and I. Right? Movies like Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, we, we, they like try and capture it. If you've seen it, good, you get the analogy. If not, I'm not sure what happened to you in your childhood, and we should probably do some counseling or something, but... Like, right, like they try with really bad special effects to show what happens when the glory of God is presented with humanity and apparently it looks like our face is melting. Right, and it's funny because that's about as close as we can get. The angels singing holy, holy, holy in Isaiah 6, they have three sets of wings. They're flying with one. They're covering their eyes with the other and they're covering their feet with the other. Covering their feet as a symbol of the unclean parts of them. Covering their eyes because they cannot look at the glory of the Lord. The perfect angelic creatures 
in the presence of God, crying out His holiness, who always perfectly worship Him, have to cover their eyes and their feet, and yet we, we think we can go into His presence. We are in a fallen state utterly incompatible with the Lord. Man, I spent all week trying to figure out a good analogy of how to get close to this. And here, here's the closest I got. My kids uh, are all created in very similar ways. And one of the ways that they are created is that all of them have like translucent skin. And so if you see my children in the wintertime, you should bring sunglasses because the pale of their skin might blind you. But what that means is that it doesn't take much for them to get sunburned. Now here's what's crazy about that. The sun burns my children's skin. You know how far the sun is away? Pretty close. 92 million miles. That's way better than I guessed. 92 million miles. Do not argue with the pastor that has a microphone. On this. No, I'm just joking. Millions of miles. Let's, let's just round it up to 100 million. Something... A hundred million miles away can burn my skin. At its core, it reaches 30 million degrees Fahrenheit. Could you imagine being next to it physically in the same room as the sun? I asked one of my kids what it would sound like, and they said, (laughs) Right? Like, yes! Do you know what you would sound like if you went into the presence of holy God, uncovered, unannounced, uninvited? Church, I hate to tell you, but it's... He is a holy God. And we must stand in awe of His holy presence. But He is not just holy in regard to His presence. He is also holy in regards to His creation. The story goes on, and Moses commands relatives of Nadab and Abihu, not one of the priests, not Aaron or his other two surviving sons, to come to get the bodies and to carry it outside the camp. And then he commands both Aaron as well as the two remaining sons not to do two things, to let their their hair hang loose and not to tear their clothes. And he also tells them, do not leave the tabernacle, presumably to go outside of the camp near your two deceased sons. Now what Moses, and more importantly the Lord is not doing, is not saying to Aaron and his two sons, do not grieve, do not be sad for the loss of life. What he is telling them to do is not to identify with the dead. Let me give you another way of putting it. When we go to a funeral, what color do you typically wear? Black. I'm glad none of you guys said like purple. Why do we wear black? It's not just because black is intrinsically, inherently sad. It's because black is a color that is identified with the dead. We dress in black 
in order to identify with those who are deceased. As if a part of us has actually died, we put on that color to say, we are with you, the one who is deceased. And the way in ancient times that people would identify with the deceased, commiserate with the deceased, was by allowing themselves to become unkempt, not simply out of grief, but to to intentionally be unkempt. So that their very presence signified and identified with death and loss of life. Same with the tearing of clothes. As if a body and soul had been rended, they identified with it that way. And the Lord says to the priests, in your ordination you were ordained to be holy. And being holy means you cannot identify with the dead. Now why is that? Well, Moses tells Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar why. Actually, the Lord does in verse 8, and it says this, The Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong wine, you or your sons, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. And then they say this, You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Moving forward, starting next week, we're going to talk significantly about holy, unholy, and even more so, clean and unclean. But these categories, holy, unholy, clean and unclean, This prohibition for Aaron and his sons not to identify with the dead is actually a part of a much larger truth that we need to understand, which is, it's not just that we are an unholy people, it is that now all of creation is unholy. God created creation in Genesis 1 and 2 reflecting His perfection, reflecting His wholeness, reflecting His ordered nature, His peace, His flourishing, His life. But with the onset of the fall, the world, all of creation, began to exhibit characteristics, aspects that were no longer of the Lord. The Lord does not identify with death because He is the God of life. The Lord does not identify with illness because in His presence is fullness, health, flourishing. God does not identify with barrenness of the world and creation because He is a God who is fruitful He does not identify with deformity because He is a God who's whole. The very creation of the world now in fallen state contrasts for us the utter holiness of God. This is why the Lord commissions the priests to help the people of God distinguish between holy and unholy, clean and unclean, so that they would 
do away with, that they would forsake as much as possible all things that testify to sin and death and the fallen nature of all of creation and move towards, cling onto all things that might give a glimmer, a foretaste of what they were actually created to be. Of who the Lord actually is. Maybe a way to say it is, if the first truth is that sinful humanity does not belong in the presence of a holy God, the second truth is that a holy God does not belong in the presence of a sinful and broken creation. Now that's a devastatingly hard truth. But it is a truth nonetheless. My kids love to play house and build forts, especially my youngest ones. And I'll come home sometimes and they'll be building a house. Now, Rachel and I got the pleasure of building a house one time before we moved down here, and we got to build it to suit our entire family. It was a wonderful place for us to dwell. It suited us wonderfully. But when I come home and my kids have built a house in the laundry basket and say, Dad, get in! It's not happening. It is an unsuitable dwelling place for their father. Right When they build it crammed in a closet or underneath of the stairs, and they're like, Dad, crawl in. And I'm like, I peek my head in. They're like, no, all the way in, Dad. I'm like, I'm not getting back out. It's an unsuitable place. This is an unsuitable place for a holy God. I hope the tension is building, because it should. We must see and know the holiness of God when it comes to His presence and when it comes to creation. And finally, we must know, see, stand in awe of the holiness of God in regards to the worship due Him. The passage ends first by Moses instructing Aaron and his two surviving sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, to carry out the rest of the sacrifices for the people of Israel. And then there is a dispute in the final verses, starting in verse 16, about one of the sacrifices that were supposed to be offered. Now, you might be asking yourself the question, Michael, what in the world does a bunch of sacrifices and details have anything to do with worship? I don't see singing in here anywhere. But worship at its core is about ascribing worth It's about identifying that which is great, ascribing value, about reverence, identifying those things that are honorable, beautiful, lovely, worthy to be praised. Worship is not inherently a religious word. As a matter of fact, One of the places that we see worship all the time, especially nowadays with a a, a million shows on Netflix, is every time there is a story or a picture of a royal, a king or a queen or a ruler, and you watch a commoner come into his presence, what does the commoner do? He bows himself. He, He lowers himself. What he's doing is worshiping. And it doesn't matter if he likes him or not. When he worships, what he's doing is he is showing a physical representation of where the ruler is and where he is. 
his position in contrast to the position of the sovereign. And the worship of Israel, these sacrifices and offerings, daily remind Israel of who the Holy One is, of who the Sovereign One is, of who their provider is, that God is worthy of their best when they bring the burnt offering that is fully consumed before them. It reminds them of the position of God and it reminds them of their position that they are in need, that they need atonement, that they are sinful, broken, that they rely upon the very presence of the Lord to provide for them, to protect them. Worship is about affirming our proper position before the Lord. And in worship, we must experience the Lord's holiness. To know that His position is high and lifted up. Unfathomably high. And that we are made of dust. The holiness of God demands worship. Now what happens at the end of Leviticus 10? Well, as we find out, Aaron and his sons actually worship. And here's why. It says, Moses inquired about the go to the sin offering. The sin offering was one of the offerings offered on behalf of all of Israel. And Moses says, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary since it is the most holy thing and has been given to you that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? Part of the sin offering." Part of almost all the offerings, except for the whole burnt offering, is that the priests would take a portion of that offering and they would consume it. It was a part of the Lord both saying, the priests belong to me and therefore out of my portion, out of what belongs to me, I provide for them in food, in nourishment. But it's also a way of the priests distinguishing that it is the Lord that has made them holy. And that Israel is not holy, save for the atoning sacrifice being made on their behalf. But Aaron and his sons do not partake, do not consume their portion of the sin offering. Why? Well, Aaron tells us. Aaron says, Behold, today they, his two sons, have offered their sin offering and burnt offering before the priests would offer on behalf of israel they would offer on behalf of their own sins so that they would be atoned for so that they could make offering and sacrifice on behalf of israel and he says aaron they made sin offering and whole burnt offering and yet such things as this have happened Nadab and Abihu, along with Eleazar and Ithamar, or Ithakar, they, they, they made atonement offerings. And yet, clearly, they were still sinful because Nadab and Abihu were consumed by the Lord. And he said, would the Lord actually be pleased if we, after that, claim to be holy with Him rather than our sins being right along with the sins of Israel? And Moses says, You are right. You, we, all of us, our, we are sinful before a holy God. Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, they were worshiping as they saw correctly their position before a holy 
God. So here is our God. Holy, holy, holy. We must revere Him. We must fear Him. We must stand in awe of Him. But as we've seen, this presents a problem. You know, I've spent much of this week on the tail end of my preparation sitting in what would have been verse 21 of chapter 10. After Moses leaves the tent of meeting, at the end of this day, as Aaron sits now with not four sons, but two remaining sons, wondering how Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar must have felt. Could you imagine the next day when it was your turn to get up and make the sacrifices? Could you imagine the tightness in your chest as moment by moment you feared that you would somehow dishonor the Lord, disobey His commands, not do quite enough in preparation to enter near His holy presence? I think if I was up the next day, I would have woke up and been like, <coughs> can't, can't get out of bed today, a little, a little sick. Dad, should you go do that sacrifice for me, please? It would have been terrifying. And honestly, it would have been terrifying for Moses and Israel too. Because the Lord dwelling with Israel hinged on the fact that they had these sacrifices and the sacrifices needed a priesthood and the Lord only selected five priests and two of them on the first day of sacrifices are dead. I mean, what hope do we honestly have that we're going to make it any length of time with a functioning priesthood that can actually offer atonement, that we can actually dwell here, or will the Lord just consume all of us? You know, there are places in Leviticus where Leviticus is a, a shadow, a dim reality that points to an even better reality, like the dim reality of the sacrifices that points to the final sacrifice, the Lamb of God, Jesus, that takes away the sins of the world. The, the priests that are a dim shadow that point to the great high priest who is Jesus, who lives to make intercession for us. But Leviticus 10 isn't a shadow. It's, it's a cliffhanger. Now I'm going to tell you guys something shocking if you're younger, but when Rachel and I first got married, we watched this TV show, uh, The West Wing, together. Uh, and we watched it on Netflix. But on Netflix in those days meant on a DVD that had come in the mail through Netflix. <sighs> right? There was no streaming. You could go onto the Netflix page and you could put your, your order in for when they would send you through physical mail, which you might not know what that is, a DVD, which you also might not know what it is. But inherently, always, we would get to the end of a season and some huge cliffhanger would happen and we'd be like, no! And it would always be like a Friday too, right? And again, probably don't know this, mail doesn't come on Sunday, 
So you'd have to wait for like three days. There was no binge watching. There was binge watching of the mailbox. Right? Leviticus 10 is a cliffhanger. And, and I say that with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek from the story, but I, I don't say that. Because for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, what I could barely empathize with for Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, what I could barely empathize with for the people of Israel, they lived with in actuality for centuries and centuries and centuries. It's why David writes, How long, O Lord? Oh God, what will you do? We cannot exist this way. You are holy and we are not. What will you ever do? But the ending of the page that was ripped out of Leviticus in chapter 10, the ending of the cliffhanger comes in Hebrews chapter 4. Since then, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confessions. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he is without sin. Okay, so what does that mean? Jesus, the priest, has come. He's mediated for us. But what does that mean for us and a holy God? Well, let me tell you. It tells you and it means that now you should with confidence draw near to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace in your time of need. Or as Ephesians 3 says, because of Christ Jesus, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Nadab and Abihu, their sin was presumption. But the bigger issue was that they were ones untimely born. Because now you and I, in light of Christ Jesus, are invited to somehow presume upon the grace and mercy offered to us to stumble, crawl, sprint into the very presence of God with confidence and boldness. Scripture uses this phrase again and again, take heart. Moses says it to Joshua. The psalmist says it to Israel. Jesus says it to the disciples. It literally means Take your heart and give it to something. To take courage with your heart. To allow your heart to cling to something. And church, take heart. Because of Christ Jesus. Take heart in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ brought the presence of God from glory to us. 
We have no business being in the presence of God, so the presence of God came to us. Christ Jesus in the incarnation identified, even entered into the brokenness of creation. When the leper came to Him, the broken, the fallen creation came to Him. Jesus did not stand far off, but instead He approached Him. He touched Him. And for the first time, the unclean did not make the clean unholy. The clean healed the unclean. And finally, Christ Himself lowered Himself to the position of washing the feet of the disciples. The gap that is too far for us to fathom has been filled by Christ and Christ alone. His holiness does not decrease His mercy. It does not decrease His grace or kindness. Church, it magnifies it. You have not been brought into the presence of an unholy God. You have been brought into the presence of a holy God. It is not a common God who has come to creation to heal it. It is a holy God who has come to creation to heal it. And your position, we are told, is one seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. You were not raised up a little bit. When David says to God, remember us for we are dust, the response now is, no, now you are my beloved sons and daughters. Let me end here. One of my favorite stories, one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis in the book The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, an interaction regarding Aslan, the Christ character, God of Narnia. Lucy, a young little girl, and finding out about this king of Narnia, says this, Is he, Aslan, a man? The beaver, who talks, says to her, Aslan, a man? Certainly not, I tell you. He is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? For I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. And make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than all or else silly. Then isn't he safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Beaver. Didn't you hear Mrs. Beaver tell you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. And he's the king. That is our God. He's not safe. But he is good. And he's the king. Let's pray.